God, I thank you for those who have gathered this morning uh, in person, online. Um, God, I thank you for the body, body of believers who we love. Um, yeah, who just count this church as home. And I thank you for those who are still trying to figure out who you are and what it might look like to follow you. Um, Lord, I pray for those who are um, just exploring the Christian faith this morning, again, in person, online, whatever. God, I pray that we would love them well and they'd catch a glimpse of who you are and that you would draw them to yourself. Amen. All right, so this morning we are kicking off a series in the book of Philippians called Enjoy Again. And we're calling it that because that's exactly what this book is all about. Like throughout the book, Paul is again and again and again saying, rejoice, 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 which is just the the old school kind of churchy way of saying, enjoy it again. Be joyful again. Get excited. Get excited about the gospel of God's grace. That he loves us in spite of us. That he he welcomes us and adopts us as his children. Find joy in it and share your joy with other people. That's the message of this book. Just a reminder of the joy that we have in Jesus. And kind of chose to do this book right now in this series right now because I believe this is exactly what we need right now. Amen? Use a little bit more joy. Like we've got this this season in our society that's, that's full of just so much gloom and doom, you know, global pandemics and political and social, you know, divisions and upheaval. And, you know, just in addition to all the things that we personally struggle with, you know, whatever our own um, anxieties and idolatries and sins are that weigh us down, you know, I've got, I've got plans that I'm making and exams that I'm taking and, 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 and relationships that I'm hoping come together and all of this stuff, and it gets heavy. And these are things that can steal our joy. In a thousand different ways, our hearts are continually drawn away from God as the ultimate source of our joy. And so this letter, this message, this series, it's all about the reminder to come back to the joy that we have in Christ, to be called back to it again and again. Again, I don't know what steals your joy. Like, we're all a little bit different that way. For me... Oh, I, I think it's, it's often when my plans and my dreams and my hopes are frustrated, you know, which there's been a lot of that for the last couple of years. And, you know, I, I've kind of got it laid out on paper, maybe like literally typed this stuff up, talked about it with the team, and then like the plan just gets completely blown up. And it, it weighs on me. It steals my joy. Or, you know, when my to-do list never actually becomes a to-done list. And, you know, some days that's because there's other interruptions and things outside my control, but sometimes that's because I just get kind of discouraged. And I I lose a little bit of hope, and I lose a little bit of faith, and I lose a little bit of courage, and so I go into the day with good intentions, but not a lot of energy, and and, and not a lot of drive, and I get to the end of the day, and I realize, you know, those, those... Things on my to-do list never made it to my to-done list, not because Satan was opposing me, but because I was just kind of discouraged and lazy today. You know, and like it was my passivity that undermined the whole thing. And it's on those days that I go home and I'm beating myself up. And, and then I get home and I'm just a little bit grumpy. And I, and you know, my kids and, and my wife, they're like, oh, Dad, he's a little bit grumpy today. You know, and, and, and maybe I snap a little bit or maybe I just see the look on their face when they're responding to, you know, kind of the tone of my voice and that sort of thing. And then I start feeling, yeah, I'm failing as a parent. I'm failing as a husband. And there's even more joy that's leaking out of my life in those moments. Now, what do I need in those moments? 
You know, some of you are like, you need what I need right now. It's like 9 a.m. and you're just rambling on. I need some coffee. You know, and, and maybe it's caffeine. Maybe it's, you know, food to eat. Maybe it's, maybe it's time to sleep. But I would say that more than anything else, I need to be reminded of the goodness of my God. I need to be reminded of his love. I need to be reminded of his grace that though I have performed poorly today, that might be getting me down, but it's not getting God down. He's not looking at me and saying, oh, I can't believe I adopted you as a son. What a jerk. What a, what a colossal mess you've made of this day. No, my God is tender, and my God is gentle, and my God is loving. And even in the midst of my low points, he comes to me, and he calls to me, and he sings over me, and he calls me his son, and he calls you his daughter. And I need to be reminded of that again and again. I need to be brought back to the good news of God's grace. That he hasn't called me to do better and try harder in order to earn his favor. But he said, you know, I I knew that you were jacked up. So jacked up that the only thing that I could do would be to come and die in your place. That's what it was going to take to fix what's broken in you. And it's an ongoing service project. Where he is working it out over time, just as David read, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus because it's going to take some time to fix the mess that's going on inside of me and the mess that's going on inside of you. And again, in my daily life, when I'm experiencing that mess, I need to be reminded again of his grace because his grace brings me back to joy. Amen? Amen. So that's all we're doing in this series. That's, That's what we're talking about. Just being reminded of a joy that gives us the freedom to walk out the door and pursue God for his glory. Not because we have to, but because we get to, because he has been good to us. So that we might have joy to share with other people. So in the coming weeks, I just want to do exactly what Paul was doing. I want to call us back again and again to the joy that overflows out of who God is and what he has done, both on the cross and in our daily lives. This morning... Two simple goals. I want to kick off this series. I want to get us oriented to the people, the places, the setting, what's going on. And I want to briefly take a minute to dive in and begin reminding us of our opportunity to be a joy to one another. So you have a Bible, a Bible app. If you want to grab a Bible in the back, um, whatever, you can follow along. If you're like, oh, that's, that's intimidating. I wouldn't know where to find the book. You know, just listen, Whatever. But we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read the first couple of verses here, and we'll dive in. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing I want us to notice is that his greeting begins with grace. Because grace is at the center of who we are as the people of God. Again, it's not merit. It's not performance. It's not, oh, you did really good, and I'm, I'm glad that you did good, and I would have been so crushed and disappointed if you had performed more poorly. No, he says, grace to you. Let me remind you of God's grace. What does grace mean? I keep on using the word. It's undeserved favor. It's something that we don't earn. It's, it's God looking at our merit and saying, I love you anyway. And so Paul's greeting, his first word of greeting is grace to you. Oh, that we were like old school in that way and we greeted each other that way. 
as believers in Jesus Christ, that, that we, the first thing we do, we wouldn't say, hello, how you doing? Yeah, how was the sports game? You know, how's the weather? Whatever. But we just said grace. It's beautiful. Second word of the greeting is peace. Expressing the peace that we have with God through grace. The peace that we have with each other because God's grace is humbling us. You know, because we bump into each other and we annoy each other and we frustrate each other and we say hurtful things to each other. And what is it that smooths over all of that and brings us back to peace? It's the grace of God that's been offered to us that is then working through us. When, when we make the connection and we say in our hearts, if, if God has been this gracious to me, then I can't continue to be bitter towards you. Grace leads to peace, peace with God, peace with one another, peace within as God's grace reminds us of his goodness and it begins to melt away our anxieties. Why are we anxious? You and I, were anxious about different things, but we're all anxious for the same reason, that, that we struggle to believe in a good God who is in control. And we're tempted to believe that if my life is going to go well, then I've got to take it by the horns and, and I've got to make it go well. That's miserable, man. Keller, I remember hearing a sermon where he talks about you're, you're, you're on a rock that's, that's spinning at, at a rate that you can't even imagine and, and hurtling through space at a faster speed than that. And, and you're trying to suffer under the illusion that you have control of your life? No, we need a God for that. And we have a God for that. And oh, to be reminded that our God is gracious and our God is good and our God is loving. That, that, that when, we, when we ask for bread, he won't give us a rock. Or he won't give us a snake. That he loves us, that he provides for us, that he counts every hair on our head. Amen? It's the grace of God that brings us peace. Peace with God. Peace with each other. Peace within as our anxieties melt away. If you want to start greeting me grace and peace, I'll take it. It's reminders that I need every day. That's the greeting. Second thing I want us to notice is who is being greeted and, and, and who is doing the greeting. What do, we, what do we know about the characters in this story? The first is, is Paul. That's the Apostle Paul. Um, apostle means that, that, that he was a leader who was personally commissioned by Jesus himself. And Jesus sent him out in his name with his authority. So and, and he expressed that authority in, in marvelous ways, that he's not just preaching and teaching and planting churches and, and discipling people, but he's also, you know, like casting out demons and healing diseases and, and doing these supernatural things in the power of God. So Paul is this guy who is going out with an authority that is beyond the authority that any human being has ever had. And yet he doesn't introduce himself as an apostle. He introduces himself as a servant. And he doesn't inter- introduce himself as the servant of Jesus Christ. No, he, he introduces himself and Timothy as a couple among the many servants of Christ. He humbles himself. He sets himself low. He says, all you need to know about me is that I'm associated with Jesus. And that's beautiful. How is it that Paul got to this place of humility? Because if you know the story and you look back at his earlier life, Paul used to be called Saul. Saul was a Jewish name. Paul was a Greek name. God changed his name to Paul because he said, I'm going to send you to the people that you hate. 
to the people that your people are naturally at war with and have no respect for and look down on. I'm going to send you to them to love them. But back in the day, before Paul was sent, before Paul was saved, before Paul was redeemed by the grace of God, Paul was an arrogant man. Paul was extremely proud, extremely self-centered, caught up in his own righteousness. He was a Pharisee. He was a leader among the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? They were this super rigid, all these rules, religious guys. They got these rules and they keep the rules and they're so proud that they keep the rules and they they go around kind of spying on everyone else and and pointing out, kind of snitching on them and pointing out the ways. You're not keeping the rules very well. You're, you're, You're not a very good follower of God. That's who he was and there was such an arrogance that swelled up as he looked at his merit and how he compared favorably to everyone else. So arrogant that when the time came that Jesus built this ministry and he, and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he built this church and then he ascended into heaven and we got these, these people at that time, you know, three, 5,000 people, a little bit more than that, who were gathered in Jerusalem worshiping God. Paul was so arrogant that he saw them worshiping, worshiping God in a, in a way that he wasn't doing, in a way that he wasn't on board with. He was so arrogant that he just knew in his heart That if they weren't doing it like him, they were wicked. They were the problem. And he was so convinced of this that he became a man who actually killed Christians. He killed people. He murdered people for worshiping his God in a way that was different than the way that he was worshiping. That's arrogant. To be so confident that God's at work in me and not in you that that, that I'm going to come down with that kind of ferocity on other people? Paul wasn't content to just do that in his local community. No, he rallied the troops and he said, guys, I know that we've been killing some people. I know we've been imprisoning some people. We've been trying to to wipe out this Christian movement thing. But I know some of them escaped. They made it to other cities. So he's camping out in Jerusalem, which is, you know, the, the ancient capital of Israel. And he says, I got an idea. I think a lot of these guys have made it all the way to Damascus. That's like, you know, hours and hundreds of miles away. He says, send me there. I'll round them up. I'll arrest them. I'll bring them back here where we can beat them. Maybe we'll even get a chance to execute a few of them. And they're like, yeah, let's get after those guys. So Paul is on the way from Jerusalem to Damascus when God blinds him with a light from heaven, knocks him on his rear end and shouts from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up, these, these guys will lead, lead you in your blindness to the next town, and you wait there until I tell you what to do. A few days later, God sent a man, he spoke through the man, he says, okay, here's, here's the deal. I'm going to heal you of your blindness, and you're going to go, and you're going to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you've been persecuting to other people who need his grace. And from that moment on, Paul was changed. Before that moment, he, he cared about the approval of men. He cared about his social standing. He cared about his good performance as, as a good little Jewish boy that was keeping the rules as a Pharisee. After that moment, he had no use for such things. He had no use for titles or having people call him an apostle. Yeah, he was sent in the authority of Jesus Christ, and at times he needed to remind people of that authority that his message was true, and and he spoke on behalf of Jesus. But if we're just talking among friends, he's not lording it over anybody. No, he's he's just telling them, I'm a servant. I'm I'm a slave of Jesus, and oh, that you would come and join me as slaves of Jesus, because this is the life, amen? 
Next guy we see is this guy named Timothy. Timothy was Paul's protege. He was a guy in, in, in the book of Acts, which is a story of the beginnings of the early church. We've got these missionary journeys where, where Paul's going town to town and he's sharing the gospel and, and believing communities are rising up and becoming churches. And so in Acts chapter 16, we, he comes to a, a city called Lystra. It's, it's like in modern day Turkey. You know, I, I don't know exactly where it is, but it's, it's that part of the world. This, this small town, he comes into this town and there's a convert named Timothy. A guy who trusts Christ through Paul's ministry. And, and Timothy's, it makes a, a big deal of the fact that Timothy's mom was a Jew and his dad was Greek. And he makes a big deal of that because in that culture, that wasn't a good combination. You know, they, they weren't into interracial marriages. They weren't into <laughs> interracial, crossing faith lines, all these things. Mom's a devout Jew, or at least she kind of was, but she's marrying this guy who's like a pagan Greek, and this, this isn't great. And, and Timothy, he's being raised in this home where it's confusing, you know, what does it look like to follow God and these, all, all of these things. And it's out of that home and out of that background that the Jewish community would have looked down on that God saves Timothy. And God calls Timothy And that's like the beginning of Acts chapter 16. And just a little bit further down in Acts chapter 16, kind of the next scene, Timothy's going off with Paul on these trips and becoming his protege. And they end up, the next city that they land in and that they settle down and they do ministry in is Philippi. And Timothy is right there with Paul doing the work alongside him. And it's it's this beautiful thing. So we got Paul and Timothy, they're writing this letter and they're trying to encourage the people in this, this young church in Philippi. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Who are the people that are being addressed in Philippi? Where is Philippi? Philippi, it's a Roman colony in Macedonia, modern-day Greece. Think Olympic area, that sort of thing. Um, Paul doesn't address ordinary people. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Overseers, it's another word for pastors. Deacons, it just means servant. It's like the the faithful servant leaders in the church who are helping out the pastors to shepherd the church, that sort of thing. And then we have this word saints. I was just asked yesterday by a friend of mine, like, what's the deal with the word saints? What What do you think about the saints? What do you do with the saints? The way we use saint in our culture, it's like, you know, some, some super holy old guy who's been dead a long time, and maybe we're going to name a building after him or a hospital after him, you know, St. Joseph, St. Jude, St. Saint, you know, Saint Paul, that sort of thing. That's, that's how we use the word saint, like in our wider culture, but that's not how the Bible uses the word saint. Uh, the word saint or, or, um, or sacred or sanctified or holy, they're all just different words that we use for the same concept. And, and, it, and it, it, it's, it has a lot of nuances to it. But basically, it means, it means someone who's set apart. They're set apart because they're, they're, they're unusually good. They're unusually holy. They're, they're unusually righteous. They're different. God refers to himself as holy, holy, holy because he's the most different thing out there. You know, most, most unique, most, most set apart, most, most different from everyone else and everything else. He's sacred. He's holy. But the way the Bible uses this word, it's not of the exception among people. When the Bible refers to somebody as a saint, it's not the exceptional Christian believer who really was like an overachieving Eagle Scout and got it all right. The Bible uses the word saint to refer to all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. 
everyone who has been set aside for God's purpose and set aside as sacred and as holy, not because we've done better than somebody else, but because God has been gracious to us. And we have received his grace. And you said, he says, you've been adopted into the family of God now. And that makes you sacred. That makes you holy. That makes you a saint. Saints. If you place your faith in Jesus, that's you. And that is who he is addressing. One of the things that I enjoy, this happens to me like, most days, if, if I'm out, you know, mixing and mingling with people who, who don't know Jesus or they're exploring who Jesus is or they're trying to understand the Christian faith, whatever, some of you, um, this, this happens to me al- almost daily on a good day where someone around me drops an F-bomb or, you know, they just, they're, they're, they're speaking in a way that they, that they think in high, oh, I shouldn't say that in front of the preacher. And, you know, sometimes, like, the stream of consciousness takes over, and they just start saying, I, I, I'm sorry, I, know, uh, I shouldn't say that in front of the holy man, you know? And there's, there's, there's just this reaction, and I love it. Not, it's not that I love the swearing, whatever, don't send me an email. Um, <laughs> I don't care. Um, I love that it's an opportunity for me to clarify what holy means. <laughs> yeah, I'm the holy man, I'm the preacher, whatever. That doesn't mean that I'm better than somebody. That doesn't mean that I perform better than anybody. No, talk to my family. I'm, I'm jacked up. Okay? Um, a friend of mine, she's like, she's like oh, I, sh- I shouldn't say that. I know you're, 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 the, you're the holy man. I'm like, yeah, but here's the deal. We're in this relationship, and we're talking about God right now. And this was in the conversation of me, like, clarifying the gospel. This person, you know, says this. Like, here's the deal. We're in this relationship, and we're exploring this. Not because I'm the holy man and you're the unholy woman, no, but because you are in the process of becoming the holy woman. And that's not primarily about your vocabulary, okay? But this is about you experiencing God's grace. That's amazing. That's awesome. Saints, that's what God's called us to do, to be his holy people. Last piece of background information. What more do we know about the church in Philippi? One of the things we, we know and that we see, at least by inference, is that it's an unusually healthy church. Paul wrote to all these different churches and all these different people, and in, in most of the letters, there's a healthy amount of rebuke because, you know, like us, there was a lot of things that kind of like needed to be rebuked. And, you know, it's not that he wanted to go there, but somebody kind of had to go there, so he goes there. But he writes to the church in Philippi, and there's like no rebuke. There's, there's this like little thing at the end where a couple of, couple of ladies have been kind of going after each other and reminds them, you know Help these ladies out who have contended by my side in the faith of the gospel. Let's, let's not let this little conflict get out of hand. But this isn't a rebuking letter. It's an encouraging letter over and over and over again. One of the other things we, we know about the church in Philippi from uh, Acts chapter 16, where we learn about its founding, we learn that it was founded on extreme diversity. Again, we got this like uber Jewish man, Paul, like Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, cream of the crop, Eagle Scout, religious guy. And, and his protege, his partner is this a racially mixed, religiously heritage mixed, um, you know, part Jew, part Greek protege named Timothy. And when they come into Philippi, Again, Macedonia, modern-day Greece, their first convert was an international businesswoman named Lydia. 
says she was a dealer in purple cloth. Purple cloth, that was like, purple was the color of royalty. This was the luxury clothing that she was dealing with. And she wasn't from there. She was from Theatira. She was from, she was from Turkey. She was, she was from across the sea, but she was doing business there because that was where the money was to be made. And she's the first one who trusts Christ. And then the next scene in that story, we've, we've got this demon-possessed girl who's following Paul around and he's shouting. And he, if I remember the story right, she's like shouting things that's true. Like, these are the servants of God. You know, they come to, you to, way to tell you the way to be saved and all this stuff. So it's like, you might think she's doing a service to him because she's telling the truth about them, but, but when you've got a crazy girl, a demon-possessed girl who's like your front man, you know, that doesn't really go well for you. That doesn't enhance your credibility. You know, so, so finally Paul, he turns and he rebukes the demon and he casts out the demon, and we don't get this clear thing, did, well, did the demon-possessed girl join the church or not? We don't know. But that's like the next miraculous scene that we see in there. And then this creates all this stir because the, the guys that were exploiting this demon-possessed girl, she could do fortune-telling, and now she can't do fortune-telling, and they're all, they're all ticked off. So they're, they're wrangling up the mob, and they get, they get Paul and Timothy thrown in prison. And, and it says that Paul and Timothy, it's like, it's like getting near midnight, and they're worshiping and they're praising God, and everyone else in the jail is silent because they're like, what is it with these dudes? What is it with these guys? Why are they singing? We're in chains right here, but they're, they're doing their thing, and, and everyone's kind of mesmerized by it. And then God miraculously sends an earthquake, and it says all the doors of the jail sprung open, and the chains fell off. And so it's this perfect time for a jailbreak. And, and the, the jailer, the, the Roman soldier who's in charge of the jail, he realizes this, there, there's a jailbreak going on, and he draws his sword to kill himself because he's like, if these guys get away, it's going to be better for me to kill myself than to, than to get what I'm going to get from, from the people who are over me if all of these prisoners get away. So it's a little bit after midnight probably. He draws his sword. He calls for lights. And, and Paul shouts, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. Yeah, God miraculously provided a way for us to get out from under your control, to escape. We didn't do it. We're enjoying our praise and worship, you know. We're, we're, we're praying to God. We're fine. All the other people, they were thinking about going, but it's just too weird. They're not going anywhere. And what does the jailer do? He rushes in. He falls on his face before Paul. And he says, what must I do to be saved? He's the next convert in this church. So, so what do we got so far? We got this, this hyper-Jewish guy. We got this like mixed background, would totally be rejected by the Jews, but he's been accepted by grace, and he's been welcomed in, and, 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 and he's the protege, and we've got this international businesswoman and this demon-possessed girl and this, this Roman jailer and his whole family, and, and prank, frankly, probably some of the people who were in prison that night who saw the whole thing, and they're like, I think we're going to join this Jesus movement as well. That's the basis of the church. And I think that God leaves all of that in there and, and, and expounds the story the way that he does to make us question, could it possibly be that, that in large part it was the diversity of this church that helped them to become so healthy? That these people had absolutely nothing in common but Jesus. So when they got together, they weren't talking football or they weren't talking quilting or they weren't, they weren't talking you know, high school drama, or they weren't talking whatever, because they didn't have those things in common. So they're talking about Jesus. 
and they're loving people across his lines. And they're like, you experienced the grace of God too? Oh yeah, let, let me tell you about God's grace towards me. And it's, it's just this amazing thing where they've been together, humbled by his grace, and, and brought together into this rich and beautiful unity. So God did this amazing work in Philippi. He did it through Paul and Timothy and others. And it's been a while that they've been away from this church. And they understand that, that joy leaks. You know, that, 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 that we get distracted and we lose sight of the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. So they're like, we got some people that we love back there. Let's go encourage them in the grace that we share in Jesus Christ. Let's restore their joy. And so that's why he writes the letter. The only other point that I want to make, the, the way I want to spend the rest of our time, is just looking at the first few verses of the letter. And I just want to highlight our opportunity to be a joy to each other and to remind each other of the joy that we have. So we're going to look at four more verses here, starting with verse 3. Paul begins, I thank my God every time I remember you. Think about that verse. Roll that around in your head for a second. I thank my God every time I remember you. He's saying to these, these, these fellow followers of Jesus in Philippi, he says, you guys are such a joy to me. You're, God has so profoundly blessed me through my relationship with you that, that every time you pop into my head, I just like drop everything and I forget what I was thinking about and I just get a big smile on my face and I start praising God for you. Aren't those the sorts of people that you want to have in your life? Aren't those the sorts of people that you would aspire to be? Don't you want to be the sort of person that like, when, when you pop into somebody's head, they're like, God, thank you. Thank you for Nancy. Oh, that was, what a blessing to have her in my life. What I just did there, kind of spontaneously, <laughs> didn't, didn't plan on doing that. That's not in the script. Isn't that how we share our joy? You know, isn't, isn't, isn't our joy enhanced when we remind each other of, of the joy that we have because God has placed this person in our lives? We say, Kyle, I thank my God every time I remember you, and I do. Al, I thank my God every time I remember you, and I do. Nellie, I thank my God every time I remember you, and I do. It's, that's part of how that joy spreads. You know, because we remind ourselves of it and we remind other people of it. And, and, and what is the joy that I share with those people? You know, we have different people we enjoy in our lives. And as I've been reflecting on this verse this week, it's been fun. It's, it's been fun to just have God keep on bringing people to mind. Yeah, whenever that person, I, I think so many of you, it's, it's just this beautiful thing. So many people who, um, who, who I've known before you, you know, Obviously, my family and my extended family and my church family and, you know, people that I'm sharing the gospel with now and people that have been able to lead to Christ and disciple in the past. There's so many different reasons. But for the people that I most enjoy, for the people that I'm most thankful for, it all centers on one thing. It's this shared experience of God's grace. And that we have... We've participated together in the grace of God, and we've participated together in the work of sharing the grace of God. And again, those aren't the only relationships that I enjoy. They aren't the only relations you enjoy. Some of them are like, 
oh yeah, we, we do football together and it's great and we just, we just really love it. Or we do gardening together and it's great and we really love it. But for me, and, and I promise you, this is going to be the case for you if you pursue this. The deepest, the richest, the most satisfying, the most joyful relationships are the ones where we've been connecting with the living God together. And we've been, we've been joining in his work together. And that's exactly what Paul talks about in this next section. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Like it just, I, I just kind of like bubble and overflow when I'm praying for you because you're my guy. That's, that's just great. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Like that's joy for Paul. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This word partnership, it's a Greek word, New Testament written in Greek. It's the word koinonia. It's this rich, this beautiful word. It's like shared participation in something. Okay, so um, partnership, shared participation, a shared relationship built around something. And in this case, built around the good news of the grace of God. Paul's saying, when I share the gospel with somebody... And, and it really clicks. And, and the, the good news of God's grace, it just grips them and it shakes them. And you're like, you're saying, God loves me like that. God loves me in spite of me. And, and it grips their heart and they're broken by it. And they can't help but start sharing it with others. He's saying when, when that happens in his life, there is a bond that is created that goes beyond any other bond. And, and I just can't help but love this person. C.S. Lewis, he talks about different kinds of love and different kinds of relationship. And um, uh, he wrote a whole book about it. But um, he talks about this reality that every relationship is built around something. You know, so some of the relationships that we have, they're built around this shared love for God. Um, some, some of our relationships are built around, again, like a shared love for football or, or just something as, as trivial as, oh, you grew up in the same town. And you didn't even really know each other, and you graduated high school like four years apart. But, oh, oh, you're from there too? Oh, that's, that's, that's cool. And there's like a little bit of a bond there. Okay, but, but the, the strength of the bond has a lot to do with what you're building the bond around. You know, and, and yet there, there is a bond that, you know, that exists around a lot of things. So, like, I was, I was reflecting on this, and, like, like my wife loves art. And, like... It's, it's fun to get down to the DIA once in a while. And I tend to take Mondays off, and they tend to be closed on Mondays. And, like, there's been so many times I've thought, it'd be great to take Jess to the DIA. Oh, they're closed today. Um, but, you know, you go down there, and, like, she's an art major, an artist, those sorts of things, love that sort of thing. She's an introvert, so she's not looking to bond over it necessarily. But, um, <laughs> but here's the deal. You get down there, and you've got somebody who really appreciates art. And, and they, they get themselves planted in front of, a Monet or a Degas or a Van Gogh. And, you know, they just, they just get pulled into the brush strokes and the nuance and, and all of the amazing beauty of it and just kind of like forget the world around them. And then imagine that another person comes up and, and just stands next to them. They're not even talking, you know, artists, introverts, they, they don't even need to. Um, but they, they're just appreciating the same thing. They're seeing the same thing. And, you know, at some point, one of them just kind of lets out a little bit of a sigh of satisfaction of, isn't this beautiful? And the other's like, oh, yeah, yeah, 
you know, and there's a connection. You know, uh, uh, imagine, imagine though, if, um, if, you know, Jess, she's like there doing her DIA thing, doing her Van Gogh thing, and somebody walks up and says, hey, how you doing? You know, that's, that's not what the artist introvert's looking for. Not, oh, you want to, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm enjoying, what, what's my deal? And C.S. Lewis talks about that. He says, he says, it's the reason why the people who are just looking for friends never seem to find them. Because friendship has to be about something. And he, I can't remember his examples. He gives, like, you know, trivial examples, even if it was, you know, an interest in dominoes or white mice or something like that. You know, even if it was completely trivial, the relationship has to be about something. But oh, how rich and robust and satisfying the relationships are when they're about a shared passion and a shared experience and a shared participation in the grace of our God. Amen? That's what Paul's talking about. That's what, that's what Paul's seeing here, just this bond that is anchored and built around the grace of the God of all creation. But he's also honest about the fact that even in those sorts of relationships, those relationships aren't easy. Because we're still sinful, we're still broken, we're still just profoundly jacked up. And so we're going to sin against each other, we're going to be insensitive to each other, we're going to be selfish at times, we're going to be unkind in our words at times, and we're going to need to extend grace to one another again and again at times, amen? And so in the midst of him just showering this church with with encouragement and praise at at the shared grace that they've experienced and, and how God has knit them together, he's like, yeah, but I know the work isn't done. You know, because probably for some of you and for some of them in that moment, they're like, oh yeah, you really bond with them and you really love them, but if you knew my life, or maybe you do know my life, maybe that's why you didn't highlight me as an example. And, you know, there's, there's this opportunity for, like, shame, you know, because we're not, like, living up to the standard or something like that. So what, is, what does Paul say? He tackles that head on in, in the last verse that we're going to look at. He says all of these, these wonderful things about their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 6 being confident of this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's God, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, so he says to those of us who feel like we're thriving in our spiritual life right now, he says, yeah, that's beautiful, that's good, I'm, I'm excited for you, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And that's okay because God's going to continue to do the work and he's going to be faithful. And he says to those of us who are like profoundly struggling in our spiritual lives, who are floundering this morning, who've you know, spent more time on lust or bitterness or greed or anxiety than, than we have engaging with the sermon in the last 20 minutes. You know? He says to us too, you know, if, if I've begun a good work in you, I'm going to finish it. You, know, you don't have to beat yourself up. You don't, you don't have to be weighed down by guilt and shame. I'm going to finish that work. And the work depends on me, not on you. He doesn't say, you know, being confident of this, that, that as you, just as you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps before, you're going to continue to do better and try harder. He says, being confident of this, that God, who began a good work in you, is going to carry it on to completion. You know, one of my great joys this morning is, is you just know that, that we have a spectrum of people at different places, including people who are just still profoundly wrestling with who God is, and we're trying to figure out, well, has God begun a good work in you yet? Is God, is God drawing you to yourself? What's, what, what's going on here? And I don't know all the particulars of your situation. But I know a God who is gracious, 
and who desires to begin his work in you and who is willing to begin his work in even you. And if you come to him by faith and, and just take him at his word that he is gracious and agree with him that, you know, doing life your own way, going your own way, doing your own thing, being the Lord of your own life, that isn't working. Say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my master. I want you to be my God. I want to follow you, and I want to trust you to fix what is broken in me. Those are the sorts of prayers that God loves to answer. And he begins this journey, and he promises, I'm going to finish the journey. And that's beautiful. And that's hopeful. And that's something that we can sing about with joy. Amen? That's all we're doing this whole series long. We're just being reminded of the joy that we have in our God who is gracious. And again, being reminded of the opportunity to remind each other and to share that joy with one another. Uh, As I close, I just want to share one snippet from the Old Testament. Uh, In the Old Testament, there's a story of of a prophet, a leader of God's people named Nehemiah. And at the time that Nehemiah was leading, his people were discouraged. His people were beaten down. His people, they'd they'd literally been in exile in a foreign land, and God had sent them back. He sent Nehemiah back to to, to work with the stragglers to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Their their civic pride, you know, it's like their football stadium was, like, destroyed and and broken down. He's like, we're going to build that thing back up, as well as their defense, all this stuff. City wall represented so much. He's trying to rebuild the people. But it's a hard go. And, and they're, they're about this work, and they get to this time where, where they take a day to, to read the law of God. And, and Nehemiah's goal is to encourage the hearts of his people with the reality of who God is. But they read the law, and they, they, they see more clearly who God is, and they see his standard and all that God has called his people to, and they begin to weep. Not weeping for joy, but weeping for shame, because they look at who God is and what God has called them to, and they look at their own lives, and they're like, oh, no. This is awful. We are so pathetic. I, stop, stop reading God's word. I don't want to hear it anymore. I am too ashamed of myself. So they're weeping. And in the midst of their weeping, Nehemiah essentially shouts out to them, Stop crying! That's not the point. He says, do not mourn or weep. Instead, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. It's probably wine, not Kool-Aid. Go enjoy choice food and, and sweet drinks and some, send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred. This day is holy. This day is set apart for the Lord, not to grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. You got sin in your life that God's exposing to you? By all means, be done with it. But don't be hung up on it. Don't beat yourself up over it. Don't lay on the floor weeping because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And our joy comes when we're reminded of his grace. Amen? Let's pray. God, I just just thank you for brothers and sisters who, like me, need to be reminded daily and throughout the day of your grace. And I thank you for the opportunity to do that. And I thank you for brothers and sisters who I love who are still trying to figure out who you are. I thank you for those who are maybe hearing of your grace for the first time or seeing some things connect and click for the first time. God, I pray. I pray for the curious. I pray for the confused. I pray that you would draw them. I pray that you'd help them to formulate their questions. And Lord, I pray that this would be a place 
uh, where we can wrestle together and remind each other together of the goodness and the grace of our God. Amen.